podcast, a global conversation hosted by Alex Resvan Hello and welcome to the Retail Podcast. Today, we're joined by Robin Satara, Chief Field CTO at Databricks. And for full disclosure, I've had the pleasure of working with Robin. And yes, I think she's awesome. Why do I think she's awesome? Because in my humble opinion, to create better working environments, better technology outcomes, better data sets that are not subject to conscious and unconscious bias, you need diversity. And Robin has been a champion of diversity, not only for the customers that she serves, but for the companies that she works on. And hence her immensely successful career in becoming top 20 women in data and tech in 2023, 2023 data IQ, top women uh, 100, and I'm sure a whole raft of other accolades that Robin has. So without any further ado, let me introduce you to Robin. So Robin, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Alex. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you. So where in the world are you? Uh, today, I happen to be in Oslo. So despite the American accent, I feel like I have been all over the world in the last few months. But yeah, my lovely hotel room here in Norway. Well, thank you for taking the time out before you start your uh, busy schedule. One of the things we're going to do um, a little bit differently. Normally, I, I dive in and start talking about, you know, Databricks, what are Databricks about? What's your day job? Blah, blah, blah. What I'd love to do, because this is all about the part of the series of um, brilliant minds in terms of diverse thinkers, people who are blazing um, or leaving a trail of, of goodness behind them and in empowering people um, as they go along. And so what I'd like to do is just take a couple of minutes and take a deep dive into to you as a person before we get to the corporate stuff. Is that okay? That sounds great. Thank you. So one of the, the most amazing things when I was doing my little research is the fact that you are an Apache helicopter, electrical and armament repairer. So early in your career, you obviously come from a, a mechanical engineering background. I'm just curious to anyone who's listening, who is at the start of their career, what advice would you offer them? Or what advice would you offer the Robin at that point in her life when, when she was sort of just at the beginning of the of the ladder of, of starting her, her career? Yeah, I always have to admit, I tell people, like I started in the mud, right? At, at, in the Korean DMZ, uh, repairing uh, Apache helicopters and Hellfire missiles and 50 millimeter machine guns. Uh, and if I look... If I look back, you know, that that I won't tell you how many decades ago that was, but, uh, you know, if I look back and sort of say, uh, do I think I would have been where I am today? There, There's no way. Like, you just don't sit in sort of those p positions and sort of say, uh, oh, I'm going to end up being, you know, a, a chief data officer or a chief technology officer at one of the, you know, some of the largest technology companies in the world. Uh, and so I think if I... If I had to look back and sort of say, what were the things that I wish I had known earlier in my career? I think uh, there, there's sort of three lessons from my perspective. The first one is uh, be confident in yourself. I've always sort of been in these male-dominated uh, industries. or uh, And so typically on, being the only female in the room or the only female on the flight line or the only female at the executive board table uh, I often, I, I even struggle with this maybe sometimes today, is I often uh, observe and listen and I'm not as vocal or as verbal about sharing my opinion or, or bringing sort of a, a different perspective to board. And so 
Uh, I wish I had been a little more, uh, you know, uh, direct and assertive earlier in my career to sort of to share that that perspective, because it is very different than everybody else in the room. And so uh, when you get those varying sort of points of view and those varying experiences, that's when organizations and teams and companies do uh, their most innovative and amazing work. And so I wish I had had more confidence in myself at the beginning. I think the second part I wish I, or the second piece of advice that I wish somebody had given me was start early with your network and your building out sort of your ecosystem. And I've talked about this before, but, you know, building up that, that network that it consists of, uh, you know, people that are your cheerleaders, that are people that give great sort of feedback, like you just did in the introduction, which is always so humbling. Um, people that are always going to sort of uh, encourage you to continue the work that you do, because it is lonely sometimes, I think, trying to drive some of those messaging. But make sure you also have the people that are going to challenge you, that are going to sort of push you outside of your comfort zone. And then make sure you have, uh, you know, sponsorship, because I think uh, as I look at many of the people that have been very, very successful in their career, you can look back and see where they created somebody that was advocating on their behalf when they weren't in the room. And I didn't create those relationships uh, until probably the last decade or so. So if you look at my career, I stayed relatively stagnant uh, for, for personal reasons. But as, the other part of that was really I didn't focus enough on building that ecosystem around me that was going to help me be successful. And then I think the third piece of advice would be ground yourself in your superpower, right? Like I, I remember interviewing for my first C-level job and sort of telling the, um, the hiring um, executive, you know, my superpower is creating structure out of chaos. And once I could really articulate it, I think, in a simple way, as opposed to just articulating a bunch of things that I had accomplished or business outcomes or KPIs or metrics. Uh, but once I could really distill the unique value proposition that I could bring to a role, uh, I've really found opportunities uh, unlocked from that perspective. Yeah, just to echo two, two parts, the other guests, uh, the CEO um, from List, she, she mentioned as well. The voice in the room is such an important thing for her. And, and as, a, as a man, you, you always have, no one's perfect. So everyone's got their internal dialogues, right? But the fact that you, you both have mentioned that makes me feel that there is a, some aspect there in terms of, I don't know, having seeking permission to talk or just questioning what you're going to say, especially in a male-dominated environment. And her, her, the, the thing that resonated me with me there is just, um, you know, forget that don't don't limit yourself by that type of oh i shouldn't say that all and i said this to her women don't say that type of thing or women don't speak whatever that stereotype is is uh to, to challenge it so there's, there's two things that i see in in terms of obviously again having worked with you i know that you're a magnet in towards people wanting to do good work with you so obviously you must that structure uh out of chaos there is some secret source there that people drift towards that. But the two points that I'd just like to sort of get your thoughts on, how do you manage priorities? Because obviously you, you sort of hinted towards, you know, family priorities, for example, and how you prioritize that. And then if, if you do have any regrets or experiences that again, when looking back, you would have wished someone would have said something to you about, you know, this prioritize in this way, or, you know, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I think I, I've shared this before. I was actually in a, a, a domestic uh, abuse sort of relationship for the first 10 years of my career. And so much of what I pivoted on those first 10 years were my family, my children, uh, right. safety. There's lots of reasons why. Uh, because the question I get asked the most often was, gosh, your career seems to really have done well over the last decade, whereas the first um, right. We didn't even see you or hear you. This was within the workplace, right? Because obviously oh, yeah. we were at Microsoft at the time. Um, so I always sort of tell people just be, you know, be cognizant of your teams and the people you're working with and people that you're trying to collaborate with. You just have no idea what's going on necessarily behind closed doors. I think the pandemic sort of opened that up a little more that it was acceptable to have these other uh, uh, influences and these other things vying for your time. For me, it was about being really structured, um, which sometimes I think drives my family crazy, but I, I am, I'm a planner. I plan everything and sort of, uh, you know, draft it out. And so for me, it's being very, very hypercritical about where I invest time. Uh, how do I make sure that I balance it and giving myself permission to say no, that I, you know, you just don't have uh, the bandwidth to deliver something the way that you know that it either should be delivered or that you want to, you know, be able to sort of deliver against it. And so it, it is okay to say, uh, you know, no or no, not now, and and sort of giving yourself permission to balance and, and shift those priorities depending on the internal or external influences that may be guiding those things. You haven't mentioned this, but again, having worked with you, I see one of the the areas and getting the what, what you've just said, empathy and leaders with empathy, that ability to understand, you know, is obviously, again, something that comes across when you're talking to not only clients, but uh, to, to your teams. And um, it's great. I, I am so torn because I can spend uh, another half an hour just unpacking all of that because I just think there's so much, so many lessons that we don't talk about in the corporate world that will help the future robins but uh, i am conscious you're in a hotel about to start your day so why don't we shift focus and and look at databricks and and your day-to-day -day job and what you're doing so tell us what is databricks all about yeah so databricks is i think it's just an amazing sort of innovative company they've uh, been around for about 10 years uh created by the founders of spark uh out of uc berkeley so uh an amazingly brilliant group of founders i think as we really thought about how do we unlock the power of big data uh, as, as it comes uh, across organizations? And so Databricks were actually uh, the creators of the lake house paradigm, which is now recognized by Gardner. And essentially what that means is it's a way for us to uh, tie together all those data silos that organizations struggle with. So if you think about uh, traditional data warehouses uh, that were typically your business insights and analytics platforms versus data lakes, which were used for your uh, more data science and machine learning uh, sort of workloads and capabilities. The, the uh, implications of the lake house are that they tie those things together so that you can have a single platform and a single set of tools um, to be able to drive insights and data science out of the same data assets, whether it's uh, structured data or unstructured data or semi-structured data. You want to be able to um, move your organization from backward looking and sort of reporting and dashboards that we're all familiar with when we think about data uh, to how do we now unlock the power of things like generative AI, which we're all talking about uh, over the last several months 
Um, and how do you do that against all of the data assets that exist within your organization? So it's an amazing platform that helps organizations tie all of that together uh, with one tool so that your data engineers, your data scientists, your data analysts, uh, you know, you can sort of spread their capabilities with the limited data talent that exists in the ecosystem today. So super exciting times, particularly uh, with this quick evolution of large language models that we all see between ChatGPT, uh, you know, Dolly has come out to show an example of how you can do it without large data sets and relatively cheaply. So uh, yeah, some great conversations that I'm having in my role, uh, which uh, as one of the four field CTOs globally, uh, I have a great opportunity to talk to hundreds and hundreds of customers on sort of what are they doing with their data? How are they thinking about the evolution and the revolution that generative AI presents uh, as they think about unlocking more of those citizen, uh, you know, citizen experiences across the organization where you and I both know, having had experience, that's where the real innovation comes from is those that sit within the business. And so, yeah, super exciting times, I think, as we think about that, uh, how do we leverage this amazing technology to unlock the power of our of our talent within our, our companies? One, one of the things that, um, that, that, I, that I saw that you talked about and I, I mentioned earlier is about when, when companies are trying to get data sets to be sort of unbiased and, you know, in their engineers, they don't end up in this sort of echo chamber of people thinking the same. Just out of interest from all the customers that you've seen, apart from recruiting diverse engineers and, you know, trying to build it from the ground up, how, how do you, is there any way to avoid that? Because you know, I've seen horrible examples of when it goes wrong, but I've not seen it in the enterprise world because I guess no one wants to air that in, in that way. But we've seen, you know, um, we've seen many examples of when the bias is built in and you end up getting really horrible outcomes. Just curious. How do you avoid that? Is there a way to avoid that? Yeah, interestingly, I saw I was at Gardner, the Gardner London event earlier this week, and we were having this exact conversation about, uh, you know, an inability to correct historical data sets necessarily. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if anybody's ever read that book, Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, uh, but it's a great example of how we just aren't even aware. So if you think about things like uh, medical testing are typically done on, the, uh, you know, a standard 30-year-old male that weighs 160 pounds. Yeah. Uh, and and so now how do you translate that into women? So it's not like you can go back and, you know, fabricate 50 years of medical data that are going to accommodate for that or like the seatbelt in a car, right? So for a woman like me that's only 5'4", the seatbelt cuts into my neck. And why? Because the seatbelt in an automobile was designed for the average male. And so... I think um, uh, for, for me, it really is not necessarily about going back and correcting all of these data sets, but how do we make sure that the creation of net new data sets, because if you think about the rate of uh, data creation, right, the veracity and velocity that data is being created today, we have an opportunity to influence what is the data that we're collecting and are we, are we trying to minimize and mitigate the biases you know, in the construct of how we're collecting data going forward. But the other thing absolutely does come down to, do you have a diverse set of uh, perspectives across the table? And if it isn't within your data team because you can't find the talent, uh, which we could have a whole, I think, hour conversation on how do you mitigate that? I think, you know, making sure that you're opening uh, for feedback from diverse 
perspectives and, and creating an inclusive uh, environment for everybody to have a voice at the table to express their, uh, you know, their lived experience, their cultural perspectives, their uh, sexual preference, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, perspectives, the gender perspective. There's all these diverse perspectives. And so making sure that as you're creating these models and ecosystems and, and uh, platforms, are you taking into account all of those different voices? And if it's not within your direct team, this is where that collaboration comes in super helpful. Are you soliciting out of the business? Are you soliciting from your customers? Are you soliciting from across your supply chain? All of these different ways that you could bring in all these uh, opposing sort of perspectives to really make sure that you're aware of in the historical data, what biases exist? How do you prevent that from going forward? And is there a way that you can mitigate the biases in your in your system today to make sure that you don't continue to propagate that historical uh, biases that exist in the systems? Understood. Just moving on a little bit in terms of, obviously you must meet with so many executives, you know, around the world from from and different industries. I know obviously from retail to finance to manufacturing. What's what's on people's mind right now? Um, and then I don't know if this is part of it, but one of the things uh, that, that that I read or heard this morning was that how much code, low code, no code, you know, 60 or 70 percent of future applications over the next couple of years will be written by citizen developers. Right. Which I used to think was, you know, a little bit of uh, maybe marketing um, from from people who would sell that stuff. But now with the the, the tools rapidly enabling people to be able to do that. Um, I don't, so I don't know if that's one of the themes, but I'm just curious, what have you heard as as the themes uh, from the execs that you're meeting? Yeah, so right now the big buzz is around generative AI, right? And sort of how are we going to integrate that into our, uh, into our ecosystems? So for example, at Gardner, we gave a keynote that was really talking about where do we see the revolution of AI impacting industries and organizations the most. And there's a there's a few sort of low hanging fruit because everybody everybody's sort of worried we don't want to repeat a Samsung, we don't want to put our IP out on the internet, uh, yeah. right? We want to make sure that we're uh, protecting our proprietary information, particularly because I have that uh, you know that masters of law and in intellectual property. I'm getting a lot of questions about how do we leverage generative AI in a way that's still protecting our our assets. Uh, but in a way that we don't miss the opportunity to really revolutionize the way that we do business. So organizations today are really talking about what are the things that they can start to do with generative AI, which I think will ultimately replace low code and no code. If you start thinking about prompt natural language sort of querying and prompt engineering, yeah. those things are going to make low code, no code almost obsolete because now you really are unlocking the power of, of your citizen capabilities. And so, uh, there's a few things. One, one is around that tech, uh, that enablement, uh, right, of organization. So uh, some of the conversations I've been having about, uh, you know, how how are you thinking about setting up sandboxes within your environment to test on? But the other thing is encourage your talent across the entire business to start doing things like prompt engineering. I think for me, I've done it to build out my weekly menu or give me a recommendation for a workout before the next marathon that I'm training for, right? There's lots of things that you could do in your personal life, uh, leveraging this technology just to learn how to get better at 
prompt engineering and natural language querying. And, and so I think that's going to unlock a whole next generation of, of talent uh, that doesn't necessarily have to come from the Python or the SQL sort of backgrounds. And so yeah. encourage that in your organization, encourage your teams. If you don't have an internal ecosystem set up yet to support it, think about doing those sandbox environments that are protecting your data and setting up the boundaries and the ethical sort of responsibility things that you want the organization to think about. Uh, but also encourage people to do it in their in their real lives because those things, uh, you know, have a lot of impact in just preparing people for this next wave of uh, not having to have a hard coding background. Yeah, the other I thing is, oh, sorry. Sorry, carry on, no, no, carry on. Yeah, the other thing is really also focusing on what are those internal things. So I think one of the big things organizations struggle with is knowledge management. We've all seen it where we've searched a billion SharePoints or <laughs> right, a million confluent pages, trying to yeah. find things like uh, HR, uh, you know, the employee policy, or how do I, uh, yeah, you know, how do I take time off? How do I find my payroll? Those types of things you can easily create within your organization, minimal impact, uh, other than uh, actually, I think it's maximum impact on the impact it has on all of your employees to start seeing, wow, I can now query in a just a regular question. Uh, you know, and it and it searches the entire internal ecosystem. So things all, like your back office, your HR, your finance, there's lots and lots of opportunity for low-hanging fruit for you to tackle those use cases yeah. to use generative AI in a, in a controlled uh, sort of way. And I do think we're also seeing lots of um, evolution in the engineering team. So how do we how do we really sort of tackle, you know, using, uh, the co-pilot types of scenarios. I think you and I both probably attended Build this week or at least listened to the recordings later. And all of the integration of those types of technologies, I think we'll continue to see uh, a, a real sort of propagation and increase of, of those capabilities and lots of technology platforms, which then help you, uh, you know, really focus on the people and process side of, of this revolution that we're seeing. So one one of the things I that I um, one of the questions that someone asked me once is Ali, why are you focus so much on diversity? Right, you're a guy. Why are you trying to you know what, what what's your angle? And and one of my humble beliefs that I I genuinely believe is one when we get to parity in the workplace, it actually and you mentioned this earlier on, it actually brings the goodness across all diverse diverse elements, whether that's religion, race, um, gender, whatever that is. But you need to anchor on one. And within the enterprise world, um, I, I, I find that sometimes it's very scattered gun in its approach to diversity. So you're trying to please everyone and end up pleasing no one. And again, I'd be curious on your thoughts, Robin, in terms of when you look at all of all the experiences and, and leaders that you've spoken to about diversity and creating better environments, how, how do you do that? What are those areas that uh, organizations, enterprises need to think about? Yeah, I think the big one is it's not just enough to have the representation around the table. You have to create an environment that's being inclusive and giving people a voice, right? So as we talked about really early uh, in our conversation, how do you make sure that, that we as sort of current leaders at the table are creating the right environments that people have the opportunity to speak up and give feedback, a true collaboration uh, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you just have the representation, but you have to think about the inclusivity of creating the, that environment where 
um, if, if a person doesn't feel comfortable speaking at the table, are you proactively going out and, and seeking their opinion in a different environment or in a different sort of way? Uh, what I found throughout the, the course of my career, particularly over the last decade or so, is that not everybody receives or gives information the same way. And so to truly create equity and equality uh, across the table, you really have to think about meeting people where they are, creating the environment that is collaborative, that gives them the way to, to give and receive an impact and influence and, and commentary in a way that's comfortable for them. And so whether you solicit outside of the a big open forum that not everybody's comfortable in speaking in and how do you aggregate that information to feed it back into the team to make sure that you have this uh, sort of agile feedback loop uh, yeah. that's creating that next evolution of collaboration across the organization. I think everybody can do that. If you see somebody at the table who's not speaking, don't call them out on the spot. They may not feel comfortable, but absolutely walk up to them after the meeting and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. There would they might be more comfortable in opening up and sharing their opinion. And I think that's something that all of us can do is, is really, uh, you know, make sure that we're creating uh, a, a, a trusted sort of safe environment that everybody feels that they can share their feedback, their experiences, their concerns, their ideas in a way that, that truly unlocks sort of innovation across an organization. Yeah. Well, you need good leaders. And I, and I think that's that's the that that's the the challenge there because I do think sometimes when you go a layer up in some companies there is groupthink everyone does come from the same background everyone is from the same gender or race class and so therefore it just you know it, yeah it, it it sometimes the across the masses interestingly enough I was listening to and for most people do listen to the diary of a CEO and they were discussing burnout what burnout is and and. This concept that actually, whether or not burnout is a real thing or not, but it's when employees or workers feel that the task that they've been given, they have no control or power over, is when they then feel burnt out, right? As opposed to empowering them to, to do that. And I think understanding them, you know, them in their whole sense um, is, is really important. Okay, looking um, in terms of closing and looking to the future, where where do you see the future? Obviously, I'm not going to ask you about Databricks and the IPO. Don't worry. We're not going to break any any rules there, SEC filings or anything. Not that there is an IPO or not. Um, but where do you see the future? What's what's um, on the horizon? You've mentioned generative AI. You know, looking two or three years down the line, what are your thoughts? Oh, my goodness. Two or three years. I think I would love to stick out with the next uh, three to six months, I think, as far as okay, technology. Sorry. As fast as technology is moving, I, I think uh, generative AI is definitely going to be the one. So if you are in any role, I think you can definitely take advantage of how do you learn that new skill set? People always ask me, how, how many jobs is this going to replace? What roles are going to go away? How do I think, is my role at risk, uh, right? I think I even saw a study from EY, like wh what's the next evolution of consultative types of businesses, right? And where is that going to go? Now that ChatGPT and, and similar uh, models can create a, you know, a, a data strategy with just a few well-worded prompts, how do we think about the evolution of, of functions? And so everyone should be thinking about how do you learn the capability to do this natural language sort of queries? How do you think about prompt engineering? How do you integrate it 
you know, into your into your current roles. That's not sharing IP. I'm not recommending that anybody put IP or yeah. proprietary information into those systems. But if you don't have the capability to do it for work, do it. Do it in your personal life. Learn yeah. the skill. Learn that capability because that absolutely is is the way of the world that we see over the next three to six months. It's going to impact. Uh, I think everybody's roles in some capacity. And so making sure that that you're practicing those things as much as possible. Uh, I know that technology isn't available to, to everyone. And so uh, if, if you can't get access to the technology, really think about other ways that you can create ecosystems. So if you're a teacher, can you create, uh, you know, engagements in the classroom that allow for that type of natural language sort of uh, interactions with other students? Can you create sort of these pseudo environments? Because while it's not strict, we know that uh, not everybody has access to, to the technology or capability. So let's really think about the next generation coming up. What are the things that we can do today that's going to help them be prepared for the jobs of the future? And I think this is part of that, uh, part of that ecosystem that we see going forward. And what a wonderful way to end the podcast. Robin, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your honesty, your your, your humility, and thank you for all the great work that you're doing in promoting uh, you know, a, a true, inclusive, and diverse environment within the fields of data and AI. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity. The Retail Podcast, a global conversation.